And, and the thing that's interesting is that I've never met anyone who was that kind of unique or that kind of personal. So when people talk about having something personal, that indicates to me that, oh, well, they just have something that everybody else has and everyone thinks that they're the only one who has that. The kind mm -hmm. of selfishness. So anyway, David, welcome to our um, uh, our talks here. Um, and we can um, begin by talking about uh, the actual practice itself and the reasons and rationales for it. Because most people uh, have been educated to a degree in Western Buddhism. And as we had mentioned before, Western Buddhism has incorrect definitions for almost all of the important words. Mm -hmm. Words like samati, words like um, um, anatta, words like nibbana, um, all kinds of words, even the word, uh, you can see how Christianized we, uh, everything has gotten because they use the word monk. Mm. And because they use the word monk, they assume that Buddhist monks are something like Christian monks. Mm. And in fact, when I was at Watt Greensboro in North Carolina, there was a uh, Christian monastery about 50 miles away, and a lot of people would wind up going to both, and they just, just didn't understand that they were, they were different. Uh, the monks, the Christian monks, they've got a schedule. They're busy all day long. They have certain time. I mean, they live by the clock. To where the the Buddhist monk, the only the only time of day is lunch. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so, uh, there is no activities planned or scheduled. We're with the Christians, they've got Vespers, they've got prayer, they've got this, they've got that, and everybody's got to go to work all at the same time. Mm. Um, to where uh, within the concept of uh, Buddhist uh, monk, everything is free. Time is free. Nothing is heavy. Mm. Place to go, nothing to do. So... All of these translations, all of these words that we have within when Westerners begin to get uh, involved with Buddhism, they get a whole list of words that are <clears throat> wrongly understood. And so the first thing that we can come to, in fact, the first word that we'll really look at in the sense of wrong translation is the word dukkha. Because the Buddha has said in several different suttas, that he only teaches one thing, both formally and now, I teach only Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Hmm. Well, now the Christians got a hold of that word Dukkha, and they says, what are we going to do with that? Oh, we know some Dukkha. We got a dude here that's got nails and crosses and that kind of stuff. It must be suffering because he really suffers. And if you suffer enough, you'll get the grace of God and forgiveness and all of that kind of stuff. And so they called it suffering. Mm. Dukkha is suffering. 
where in fact the word dukkha doesn't mean that at all. What it means is inherently unsatisfying. Mm. We're not inherently, but we choose to see things as unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. Mm. Uh And that's a judgment based upon ourselves that actually is the same thing as the teaching in uh, the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, where uh, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What does eating of the fruit mean? It means that they've got to put up with the results of their judgmental mind. And by by making judgments, this is good, this is bad, Mm -hmm. they were in paradise, you see. They were in paradise. And here they go around saying, I like that tree and that one's evil. If you start finding evil trees in paradise, you've destroyed paradise Mm -hmm. by calling it evil. That's how you get thrown out of paradise is by calling it evil. Yes. So true. All right. So that's the whole point of dukkha is uh, being dissatisfied with what things are. And dukkha naroda means coming out of that dissatisfaction immediately. Coming out of it right now. Drop it right now. And yet Western mentality has the idea of dukkha, 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 more dukkha. I've got to put up with dukkha. I've got to investigate dukkha and I'll probably die with dukkha. Okay. And if I'm very, very lucky and it's very, very rare and I'm one person out of ever how many there's been in the past four or five hundred years, I'll be the first one who is free from dukkha eventually. And that's the way that people look at it. All right. And that's not the way that the teaching of the Buddha is at all. The teachings of the Buddha is dukkha, dukkha naroda, because you can make that change right now. Mm-hmm. You make that change immediately mm-hmm. because you're able to see the dukkha and you step around it. So imagine then that the dukkha that we're talking about here is like a cow pie. And that we've got a pasture here and all the cows are way on the other side of the pasture. If the farmer wants to go to these cows If he, in fact, goes to the cows, watching where they are, they might move a little bit. So he's uh, watching the cows to make sure that he can get to them. By the time he gets to those cows, he's going to be covered in cow shit. Because he's not watching where he's going. He's not watching every step. He's looking at the cows. He's off in the future. Okay. He's he's goal-oriented. And because he's goal-oriented, he's not watching what he's doing right now. Mm Mm-hmm. He needs to watch where he's going to put his next footfall because it might be a cow pie or a snake. Right. All right. So this is how we're beginning to understand practice is dukkha, dukkha, naroda means change the mind right now. And this takes effort. When when we begin, there is an effort. It requires an effort. But once we get on a roll, we recognize that all there was nothing to it. That it becomes easy. That in fact, that's what we're beginning to do is to take the struggle out of things. Because the struggle is due to dissatisfaction. If you're already satisfied with things, then where's the struggle? 
And so one's right effort is to change our attitude, to change our mind, to change our thoughts from unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's basically all there is to the practice, not much to it. And yet most Westerners struggle. They note, they work hard, they sit, they they want something. Mm-hmm. And because they want something, they don't get it. Right. Okay, what does that mean they don't get it is, is that getting it means that they don't want it anymore, and yet they still want, and they still want, and they still want. They haven't gotten to the point of being satisfied. Mm-hmm. And the first part of that means that we need to learn to be satisfied even if we don't get what we want. Mm-hmm. And then we begin to look at the wanting. And then we can recognize, oh, I can change. If I can change becoming satisfied, even if I don't get what I want, then I can begin to change what I want. And if I don't want anything at all, if I want nothing, then there's nothing to do, no place to go. Yeah, right. And so this is the actual practice. Now, uh, this teaching of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda breaks down into then immediately into the Four Noble Truths. There is Dukkha. It exists. Now, many people think that life itself is Dukkha. No, life itself is not Dukkha. If I had you by the throat and gave you the option of I can either choke you now or I'll just keep my hands on your throat for five minutes and then I'll choke you to death, which would you choose? To die now or to get another five minutes? Yeah. (laughs) That means that life itself is not Dukkha. But we cling to it so strongly. In fact, life itself is the best gift. That's the best thing that we've got. And we need to learn to appreciate it and become satisfied with it. Satisfied with being alive. Mm. Mm-hmm. That in fact, every breath that you've taken up until this point has gotten you here to where you're still alive. It doesn't matter what screw ups or what bad things that you've done in the past. You're still here. You're still alive. Congratulations. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. <laughs> congratulations for still being alive. Well, you don't appreciate that. That's why I'm trying to get you to congratulate yourself for the fact that you're still alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so life itself is not Duca. Now, is it? No. Ah, but somewhere along the line, Buddhists got associated with life itself as dukkha, and I've seen uh, bumper stickers that go something like, life is shit, and then you die. Well, life is not shit. You could say that life sucks, but the only reason that life sucks is because we're the one who does the sucking. If you keep sucking on stuff, then your life sucks. When you stop sucking... Your life don't suck no more. I know I'm quite an expert at that. I once sucked a Mercedes Benz SL500 through a straw. I sucked it right up. Boy, did I suck. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
that indicates that there's got to be a reason for this stuff. The second noble truth. The second noble truth is, is that there is a cause for dukkha. Mm. Now, the Mahayana have got it down very simple. They just think that clinging or tanha is suffering, or wanting things. But that's not actually the way that the Buddha described it, and it's actually not complete. That the important point is that dukkha is caused by ignorance. Or in our language, stupidity. <laughs> like this farmer who is so stupid that he's not even watching where he is stepping because he's too, so interested in getting to his cows that he's not watching where he's going. And so this is the cause of suffering is, is that we're not watching what we're doing. We're ignorant. We don't mm -hmm. see. So if there is greed and we do not see it, it's going to cause dukkha. If there is ill will, if we don't like something, that's dukkha itself. If we can see that that's dukkha itself, we can make a change for it. So this is the whole point of the second noble truth is the cause of suffering means that we need to pay attention to dukkha and what causes it. Stupidity. And stupidity. Right. Stupidity and wanting things that we don't have. And are too stupid to recognize that, hey, I'm in a state of wanting when I want something I don't have. <laughs> and if I'd stop wanting something that I don't have, I'd be okay. But we can't, that's the problem. Like we can't, most people cannot see that they're okay, right? Right. Well, they've been trained since childhood that they're not okay, that the, all love is conditional. Uh, Mommy and daddy's love is uh, unconditional when the baby is born and the baby gets nurtured and nurtured and nurtured. But by the time the child is two, three or four years old, now the child is put to work. He's either mommy's little helper or he's gone to school or he's put as a table waiter or something. And now all of our love becomes conditional. And that's the environment that we're raised in is yeah. raised on conditionalities that you do not get, uh, let us say, the grace of God until you suffer enough. Yeah. Rather than recognizing, no, the grace of God's right here. Here it is. Yeah. Up to you. Can you either see it and become aware of it or are you going to stay ignorant to it and wanting something else saying, well, the grace of God, I don't know about, but at least I can have a girlfriend or a car or a motorcycle or a job or whatever it is that we want. Not recognizing that we've already got everything that we need with this breath. Mm. That in fact, whatever it is that you want or need is probably not going to kill you to do without it, at least not for a while. I mean, you can even go for... Uh, people have fasted for many times longer than 30 days, and so food you can do without for a while. Water, you can do without that for a few days. How long can you go without breathing? Mm -hmm. In fact, you've got a death sentence. That death sentence is only two minutes from now. 
unless you're well trained and then it's three or four minutes. But if you don't breathe, you're going to die. So breath itself is life itself. And this is why Anapanasati is so valuable. So if in fact we can see the greed, the ill will that we have and drop it, then we can be okay. We can be all right. We can be free from it. This is the third noble truth. Now in Western Buddhism, they think that this freedom from uh, dukkha is something almighty and spectacular to where in fact you're free from dukkha several times a day at least. Like when you sit down to a meal or after you've chewed some food and swallowed, there will be moments and points of time when you're completely satisfied. You're not thinking about something that you don't have. But the funny thing, when people sit down to meditate, all of a sudden now they're thinking about things that they want, things that they don't have, things that they're trying to do, attainments, soda ponds, enlightenment, <laughs> nibbana, all kinds of things that they want that they can't have. Right. And so what we have to do then is learn to practice correctly. This is where we come into the four uh, noble truths leading into the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, the Eightfold Noble Path is described in the suttas is when the B Buddha says, monks, I will teach you about right unification of mind with its supports and features. This is a very, very heavy loaded statement. If you can remember this monks, I will teach you about right unification of mind with its supports and features. Now, what do we mean by right unification of mind? The mind that is unified and not in a fight, not in an argument, not in a division, but unified. This is also in the words that we have in English would be someone of integrity, someone who is honorable, someone who acts nobly. He does not have conflicts of interest. Right, but most of us have conflicts of interest. I want to go in there and I want to go out there. And as soon as I want to go in there, I have the thought I want to go out there and now I'm in a conflict. Or I have a conflict in the sense of I've got a rule that I should follow. You ought to go on a diet, say, or uh, you ought to stop smoking or whatever it is. And then the other part of it says, I don't want to stop smoking. I don't want to go on a diet. And so now we're in a fight. We're in an internal dialogue and both sides are unhappy, uncomfortable, dissatisfied. One is dissatisfied because we're not following the rules and the other part of us is dissatisfied because there are rules to follow. And so what we're going to be doing is working for getting the mind unified, bringing all of the parts to the mind together. And when the various parts of the mind are together, when there are the features that are there, then the mind would be unified. And yet this word that we're talking about, this unification of the mind, uh, the Pali word is samati, and samati is always translated as what? Concentration. concentration. Yes, concentration. And yet this has got nothing to do with concentration. That's a bad translation. 
that we're not trying to concentrate the mind. We're trying to unify the mind. Concentrating the mind yeah. says, well, I'm going to keep this part and I'm going to throw that part out. I'm only going to keep this part. To where the whole point with the Buddhist teaching is, no, we have to integrate and unify the mind. Mm. And so by unifying the mind, it's going to have supports and features. The features of the mind have to do that when the mind is unified, when it is whole and wholesome, it doesn't want anything. It's not in the state of wanting something that it doesn't have. So if you don't want anything at all, then you're very unlikely to go out and harm someone or kill someone to get it. It's very unlikely if you don't want anything to go take it. It's very unlikely that if you don't want anything to go gossip about it. Or about gossip about people who do have it or gossip about people who don't have it. If you don't want anything, there's no gossip, there's no lies. Then in fact, you could see that if you are lying, that that lie is actually a division. The mind is broken apart and you're uh, uh, suffering with the truth and the not truth. That you don't like the truth and you want the not truth to be true enough to where you're going to state that the not truth is true. This is a disintegration of the mind. Dis integration falling apart and so we're a mess we're a crowd everybody's a crowd and what we need to learn to do is to become unified and whole again okay and so let's look at the uh, um, <clears throat> the supports for this unification of mind and the support for the unification of the mind is starting with right view Right noble view comes first, but right noble view is a skill. It's a skill to be developed. Well, you already called, so that means that you have some right to noble view already, just a little, because you recognize enough dukkha that you want to call. All right, so there's the beginning. That's the bud of it. We've got some right noble view going. The next item on the list is right noble uh, remembering the word sati. Now, even though the Buddha says that right view comes first, because technically it does, the most important one is right sati to remember. Because it doesn't matter what skills you have, if you forget to, re uh, to apply those skills when you need them, then those skills are of no value. You have to remember. This is what sati is all about, is to come back and to come back and to remember to come back and to keep coming back, coming back to the present moment, coming out of the dukkha, back into the reality of the thing. This is what the, uh, the waking up is all about, to wake up into the reality of the moment, which means coming out of all of our thoughts. What are generally thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about someplace else, thoughts about other people who were not here? That in fact, most of our thoughts are thoughts of concepts and conceptualizations. That right now, your world is inside the four walls of that room that you're in because that's the extent of your vision and your hearing. 
That's the extent of the uh, the odors that you smell of the odors that are in the room that you're in. And when you're in that room alone, there you are. But if someone else comes into that room, now you're going to be divided between who you are and who they are. And so uh, we have to recognize that our world, our real world is on, is small and only assigned to the senses. If you're close enough to sense it with the senses, then it's real and it's in your world and everything else is a concept between your ears. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Washington, D.C., for instance, or Moscow, Moscow and Washington, D.C. are just concepts. Mm -hmm. President Putin and President uh, Biden and President Trump and President this, that and the other thing for you and me are just concepts. And not only that, but our concepts are built upon not reality, but concepts that we got from other people who got their concepts from other people and there's not much reality going on anywhere. No. <laughs> All right, so what we're beginning to do now is we're going to start paying attention. We're going to remember to look at what's real. Mm -hmm. Right in front of us or right here. That's what the real practice of the Eightfold Noble Path is, is, is to remember to look at what's going on. Mm -hmm. To remember to look to see is this dukkha or not? Are you comfortable? Are you afraid? Are you uh, uncomfortable? Are you satisfied? These are the kind of things that we're going to do with the investigation to begin to see what's really going on. And then once we can see what's going on, we now have the choice to make a change. This is one's right effort. One's right effort is to put the change that is needed to come out of the dukkha, come out of the concepts, and come into the present moment and enjoy this next breath, enjoy being alive, enjoy being right here, right now. Yeah. Now, this is, we begin to practice this by, first off, recognizing that many of the thoughts that we have are unwholesome. They're unwholesome because they're conceptualizations, they're about the past, they're about the future, they're about other people who are not here, they're about other places that are not here. And so this is the kind of thinking that we do, and we're going to call all of that kind of thinking unwholesome, because it's not about what's going on right here, right now. And so changing the kind of thoughts that we're having from out there, over yonder, down under or whatever, and start having thoughts about what we're doing right here, right now. Thoughts about the breathing, thoughts about the body, thoughts about the touch of the skin, thoughts about the smells that we have, thoughts about the hearing that we have. And we just come into the paradise that we already live in rather than the jungle that is the mind's concepts about the paradise. These are the first three items on the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view, right um, effort to change, 
and write Shati to remember to look and to make a change. Now, the effort in the beginning for the students is a lot of effort. It takes effort to make these changes. But after you begin to get some skill at it, the effort becomes easier. One of the things that will help the effort is the waking up. If you really, really wake up and really, really see the dukkha, then it doesn't take so much effort to come out of it. But if you only wake up a little bit to see the dukkha a little bit, and then we don't have the effort to come out of it. We'll kind of put up with it. It's okay. In other words, we have the kind of, uh, uh, how to say it, unthunk thought that it's more work to change and the benefit is not worth the effort. And that's true for the beginner. But if you keep practicing and keep changing, then the changing gets easier because now of the skill is, is that we can see Dukkha in ways that we could see it before. But there's another point to it, and that is the step four of Anapanasati, or actually the Eightfold Noble Path. Step four is what is referred to in Nepali as Sama Sankapa, that is um, translated as uh, incorrectly as right thought, and more correctly as right intention. But another way of looking at it is, is it, the mind has a leaning. And you know that woodcutters, uh, if they can get a tree to lean in a certain direction, then when they cut the tree down, it will fall in the direction that it's leaning. All right. Well, our own mind does that too. Whichever direction that we're leaning, that's the direction that we're going to fall. And so what we need to do then is start to make some changes or corrections to this attitude. That's what we're another word that we can use besides intention would be attitude. I use the word niggle. Another one would be an expectation, something like that, that only lasts about a tenth of a second. It only takes one mind moment for an attitude. Now, mostly the attitude that people have is the attitude of a victim, the attitude of a loser, the attitude that work is hard. The attitude that the struggle is big, the attitude that the effort is too much. Oh, I think I lost you, Zamarata. When we were children, we still were under the. Oh, welcome back. <laughs> there we go, yeah. Yes, that we start off as uh, victims. A, a tender infant can't take care of itself, is completely at mercy to its environment. As young children, we stay in that dependent position. That, we, that when we walk, we got to hold somebody's hand and their hand is, so we got to hold our arm up in the air just to hold somebody's hand. And we don't have a choice about it. We got to do what we're told to do. Mm. And so we start off as victims. Mm. What this practice of Anapanasati is, is the practice of changing that attitude from being a victim into being a winner. And this is how it is accomplished. 
over time, when we keep changing our thoughts from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts over and over and over again and begin to get the benefit of that, we begin to change the attitude of, hey, I can do this. Hey, I can feel good. Hey, I don't have to be dissatisfied all the time because I can see that I can put myself into a state of satisfaction. yippee ki kaye, I can do this. And we begin to change our attitude. And when we change it sufficiently, we can think of it as the lion. The Buddha was known as a lion. That's the attitude that we're developing, the attitude of you can do this, the attitude of I've got this wired, the attitude that it doesn't matter what happens, even my own death, I can handle it well. And so we begin to uh, develop this attitude. This is the part then that with these four things of right viewing, right uh, sati, to remember to look, right effort to change, and then the appreciation of that change. The knowledge of that change, that yes, we can change. Yes, I am not stuck in who I used to be. This is where the word anatta actually has some value, is because you recognize if you do change, you're not the same person as you were before, and if you believe in a soul, that the soul can't change. I mean, Christianity works really hard to try to prove to you and teach you that you can't change. Look at the, the, the scriptures. Um, in Romans, it says, who are you to be good? Only God is good. Another one is, except uh, uh, you accept Jesus as your savior and thou shalt be saved. But if you don't take Jesus as your savior, you're stuck. You're fucked. You're lost. <laughs> you're going to go to hell. And in fact, the reality is, is that you're already in hell. <laughs> and so this is where the Samasankapa really has the power coming in to where it's the attitude now that I can change. I am not stuck. That's not who I am anymore. I can make a change there. And the change is for the better because that's the intention. Mm -hmm. So this is the actual practice of Anapanasati, or actually the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path, and we use Anapanasati to practice this Eightfold Noble Path. Now let's go back to the beginning for just a moment and, and look at a view. Right Noble View uh there's there's two ways of looking one is the looking at it in the sense of a noun and the other one is a verb when we think of wrong view that's often always a noun and it's stated in the sense of uh i can get away with it i can go do what i want to do i want something bad enough that i can go get it and i can uh get away with and not have to suffer the consequences of my bad behavior in getting what I want. I can get away with it. Okay. Then in fact, a lot of times people do get away with it in the sense of getting away from the police. Or even though everybody knows that Donald Trump is a crook, they still, he's getting away with it. Right? Except that he's not because he's burning his mind. Putin thinks that he's going to be able to invade Ukraine and get away with it. Guess what? 
it's burning his mind. He really has a, a mental problem right now because he's not getting what he wanted and he's not getting away with it. And so there is the ordinary right view, which is also a concept or a noun. And that concept, the word for it is, no, you can't get away with it. No, you can't get away with it. We're going to make sure you can't get away with it. We're going to hire cops. We're going to get teachers. We're going to get an uncle or two, maybe a grandpa. And if and and if the cops don't work, then we're going to get an army. And if the army doesn't work, we're going to get a priest. And we're going to make sure that you do not get away with it. Even if you die getting away with it, the priest and all of his uh, minions and uh, the common machine are all going to work together to dig you up out of that grave just to kick your ass. And that's the way that they look at it, okay? Uh, this is the ordinary right view is, is that we're going to make sure you don't get away with it. So you can see, in fact, in this regard, ordinary right view is your ordinary parent. An ordinary wrong view is the view of the child. And we carry these two components within our minds for the rest of our lives with the rule maker saying you can't get away with it and the child saying yes I can get away with it whoops I didn't get away with it that time but next time I'll get away with it mm. and so these are both nouns in the sense of viewing or a world view or a way that we see the world and things like this but that's not what we mean by right view right view actually has the quality of right investigation or right viewing looking at what's happening right now. So one of them then would be the wrong view and the right view, right ordinary right view and wrong view would be like two books on the bookshelf. And right noble view is like a pair of binoculars. Okay, it's the looking wisely looking at what's going on in the mind right now to test for what's wholesome, what's not wholesome, what's uh, useful, valuable, beneficial, what's going on right now, and things that are not happening right now, we don't have to think about right now. I don't have to think about what's going to happen tomorrow or what happened last week or what's even going to happen in an hour or two. Let's look at what's instead what's actually happening right now. And if I'm thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, it would be better if I stop thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow and start thinking about what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So thinking about tomorrow, thinking about last week, thinking about over there is unwholesome because it's not real. It's not here, not now. Right. And so we're going to start changing the thoughts that we have from thoughts of over there, back yonder, way over there in the future, all of that, and start looking at what's going on right now. This is one's right viewing. And if we look at what's happening right now, then we can have the change. We can make a change with the right effort for right now. 
Okay, so that changing from the unwholesome to the wholesome, if we go back and apply it now to Anapanasati, after we've been talking all of this time, we've only been talking about Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. Now we're going to start to talk about how do we practice this? This is the Anapanasati practice. Now the Anapanasati practice is a complete practice because it works with everything that you are or you think that you are. The body, the feelings, the mind, and the thoughts and all the objects of the mind. This is the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. In other words, if we're going to be mindful or Sati, if we're going to look at something, this, this is the group of things we're going to be looking at. The body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects right here, right now. This is Anapanasati, is to take care of these four items. Well, taking care of the body, the first thing that we do is we work with the breathing. Then we work with the knowledge of the body, and eventually, very quickly, in fact, if we're uh, practicing correctly, it's relaxation of the body, to bring the body out of the state of tension, out of the state of pain, into a state of comfort and relaxation. We also do that with the mind by taking out the unwholesome thoughts and start paying attention to the body. By paying attention to the body, looking at what the body's doing, we've actually changed the mind. Then, in fact, we cannot even take a deep breath unless we change the mind to say the mind is going to tell the breath to be a big, deep breath. If you don't think about it, it's not going to happen. The mind is the forerunner for everything. And so in order to train the body, we've got to train the mind at the same time. They work together like that. And so by paying attention to the body, we're going to be paying attention to the mind. And we're going to be paying attention to the body right here, right now, the way that the body is, not what we're going to do at the gym next week. Or unwrapping a bandage on the arm next month or whatever that like that. No, it's right here, right now. What's the body doing? And so we can uh, work with it in the sense of that right here, right now, the environment that you're in, the body's in a, in a room here that's safe and secure. So we need to work with the body to make sure that the body feels safe and secure as well as comfortable and satisfied. Well, we, sometimes we have to talk ourselves into that because we normally don't feel secure. We feel afraid. We think about that email that has to go to the boss or think about the boss or think about the cops or think about this, that and the other thing. We'll feel fear. But right here, right now, there's nothing to fear. And so we need to look at that to make sure that we understand that right now that there is nothing to fear. This is the nothingness that we can look at. There is nothing to fear. For instance, there are no alligators on the floor. I mean, look at the floor. Are there any alligators on the floor? <laughs> How about uh, a tarantula? Do you have a tarantula on your arm? I wish. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Well, uh, <laughs> Actually, you would be afraid. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you'd be very careful, wouldn't you? 
I'd be I'd be excited and afraid at the same time. Right. All right. But the fact is, is that those things are not there. So there's no reason to be afraid or excited. That in fact, both of those things for you right now are mental constructs. There is really no spider. And so when you think about the spider, you're thinking about that it would be exhilarating or interesting, but that's still a mental concept. A real spider is different. Mm-hmm. A real alligator in the room is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the SWAT team is breaking into your room right now, that's different than the thought of this of the uh, uh, SWAT team breaking into your room. The reality of it, but the reality is not happening. Mm-hmm. Since it's not happening, why should we have thoughts about it? Let's throw those out too. But we sue it by saying there are no problems. There are no alligators. There's no tarantulas. There's no snakes. There's no boogeyman. There is no bear in the closet. And I can feel safe and secure right now. So this is the way that we start working with with the, the language that we have. We start thinking in wholesome terms. In the Anapanasati Sutta, it's referred to as gladdening the mind, to brighten the mind, to gladden the mind, to put wholesome things in the mind. And the wholesome things would be everything is good now. Everything is safe. There's no problems. There's no worries. There's no flurries. There's no discomforts. And I can feel safe and secure. This safety, security, and comfort together will bring on satisfaction. In other words, the opposite of dukkha, which is being dissatisfied, we can literally talk ourselves into the feeling of being satisfied. This word for the satisfaction, safety, security, and comfort, those items together have the Pali word sukha. And sukha is exactly the opposite of dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, naroda is the same as saying dukkha, sukha. Can you get yourself into a state of sukha? And then can you maintain that state of sukha? Mm-hmm. That's the point. This, in fact, this is part of Anapanasati, the actual training. Thus, one trains oneself to breathe in long, to breathe out long, to have happy, satisfying thoughts. And then we begin to feel contented satisfied, comfortable. This is the beginning of the practice. This is right view, right effort, and right sati. We have to remember to do this, to take a look, and to make a change, to come into this state of satisfaction by removing all the thoughts that are not satisfaction. If we do this over and over and over again, we begin to change our attitude. The attitude change here in the Pali is the Pali word pity. Pity means elation. It means wow. It means uh, celebration. Mm -hmm. It has to do with confidence. Okay, so imagine what happens when the star football player 
uh, let us say the World Cup or uh, the Rose Bowl or the Sugar Bowl or the Heisman Trophy or whatever it is, and he's getting uh, and he's running down the field with his football, and then he makes the touchdown. What's the thing that? What's the very first thing that he does after he makes the touchdown? Yes, he celebrates. Okay. That's what we're going to be practicing is the practicing of the celebration of satisfaction. The celebration of satisfaction then is the Pittisukha. And they are both, uh, in fact, step, uh, they call them steps. Uh, item number five and item number six of Anapanasati is to put ourselves into this state of satisfaction, safety, security, comfort, and also that, wow, this is good. The wow, I can do this. Wow, I'm still alive. Wow, this moment is really great. This state that we're talking about now that has these unwholesome thoughts, these hindrances removed, they're gone. It also has the quality of applying the mind to the wholesome and keeping it there for a while to continue to have wholesome thoughts. And as we apply and sustain these wholesome thoughts, we begin to feel satisfied. And as we feel satisfied and we sustain that, we begin to feel uh, like a champion. We can do this. These factors now are gathering together for a different kind of samadhi. Before we were talking about the integration and unification of the mind, and now we're talking about an integration and unification of features that exist only right now. And that is the feature of being completely free from the hindrances, apply the mind to the wholesome, sustain the mind on the wholesome, allowing the, uh, the pity to arise and the sukha to arise. And guess what? You now have the five factors of the first jhana, which is also accompanied by the relaxation of the body. So you could say that there are six factors or, uh, of, or, of the samadhi of the first jhana, and that is when the mind is free from hindrances. When we're thinking about only what's happening right now, when we enjoy what's happening right now, when we get a big kick out of what's happening right now because we're focusing on what's happening right now and we sustain that right now in a really comfortable way. Those are the six factors of the first jhana. That's another kind of samadhi. And when you're in that state of samadhi, where's the dukkha? No dukkha. So this is the practice of anapanasati, and this is the practice that we're getting together. And when we have these five items together, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa calls that a mind fit for work. The Buddha talks about it in a sense of unification of the mind. So the question is, when the mind is fit for work, what work is there to do? The answer to that is what we have already been doing in the sense of looking at what's going on, except now we're doing it with a mind that's really fit for doing it. That we don't have to keep coming back from the unwholesome thoughts because we've got one wholesome thought after another. So now we're going to be looking at the application of the mind, focusing the mind, of sustaining the mind, 
focusing on, in fact, seeing that we are free from hindrances. Also, that we can experience the pity and the sukha. So let's look at that. Let's really, really feel good by paying all of our attention to how we feel because our thoughts are no longer important because they're already all wholesome. So we can begin to let gaps happen in the thoughts. And we pay all of our attention on or our thought moments now are all about how good we feel. So that's what we're going to be doing with the mind that's fit for work is we're going to really experience what's going on in a very wholesome way. So this is Anapanasati, a beginning of Anapanasati, and you can see how deeply tied it is to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path and the Satipatthana. They're all intricately related. And when you see them as a unification or intricately related, you can recognize that the, the teaching of the Buddha is actually not big. A lot of people get the idea that Buddhism is vast. No, it's not. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. It's one thing 10 million times. It's not 10 million things. <laughs> so we practice it over and over and over and over and over again because the old habits will pull us back into the past. I feel like uh, what you're talking about is um, like with jhana, that's uh, a conditioned state, though. So yes, you... but it's a hell of a lot better conditioned state than the state you're in right now. <laughs> Here no. you are going around pulling things apart, picking at it. I mean, that's what you normally do. It doesn't matter how good it is. You can find something wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> there you are back to Adam and Eve again destroying your paradise I give you a paradise and you say yeah but it's conditioned <laughs> I, I feel like for myself I I don't know if I have that many uh, like overt uh, unwholesome thoughts nowadays. Well, that's just because you're not skilled at detecting what a thought is, whether it's wholesome or not. This is the the new practice is is to begin to look at and make a determination. Are these thoughts really as wholesome as I thought that they were? Mm. But this is this is the deception. This is the um, uh, uh, the denial. This is the, uh, the, the the delusion that we're in, and we can call it ignorance, but it's not necessarily ignorance because ignorance, especially wise ignorance, when you don't know something, you know you don't know it. But here you are saying, "Well, my thoughts are not all of that unwholesome," which means that you don't know. You haven't seen. And as you develop the skill of knowing what's a, a wholesome thought and what's not a wholesome thought, then you'll be able to make better choices. 
one thing for sure, and that is, is that we do know that there are some thoughts that are absolutely unwholesome. Thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of getting something, thoughts of hurting, hurting someone, either to get something or to get revenge. So thoughts of other people suffering is truly unwholesome. Cruelty. Mm -hmm. Then there is a whole wide variety of thoughts that are, uh, let us say, uh, have uh, value for us or have some sort of gratification and we don't see the danger. But once we begin to investigate, we can begin to see the dangers in these things that we used to get gratification from. And now that we see the danger, we have to make kind of a balance here. Is it really worth the effort to go get what I want? And when we recognize it, maybe it's not worth the effort. Maybe I can put that thought down and just be happy instead. So we begin to work from the position of some things are automatically unwholesome. There's a huge gray area, but there's also that point that we know of where things are absolutely wholesome. An example of that, which we've already had, is this present moment. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. No worries, no flurries, no problems. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, and the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Other thoughts like, I don't need anything, I've already got everything I need. Wow, what a nice moment this is. Now those thoughts are wholesome. So those are the kind of thoughts that you can begin to work with, as opposed to the other kind of thoughts, which are about over there, back then, someplace else. You start bringing your thoughts to right here, right now. The body is doing this right now. The hands are doing this right now. The breathing is operating like this right now. I feel like this right now. I think these thoughts right now. So that's what it's all about. In fact, you probably have heard that the Buddha was referred to in his time as the Tathagata. He didn't, wasn't called Buddha. I don't even know when it was that the word Buddha became popular, but it was hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards. That we do know that 150 years after the time of the Buddha, that the, uh, uh, the pillars, the edicts, the stuff that was carved by uh, King Asok or uh, Emperor Asok called him Sakyamuni. So where the word Buddha came from, I'm not sure. But he called himself Tathagatha. Do you know what that word means? Uh, is it like uh, thus come, thus gone? Uh, well, that is one of the really, really bad translations. <laughs> and what it means, the, the word Tathagatha uh, actually means here, the here now. Thusness, thisness, this is it, this right now. Whoops, it's gone, but there's a new one right now. Whoops, it's gone too, but there's a new moment. This is what we mean by th this present moment, this, as opposed to something that happened 10 seconds ago. So 
the word Tathagatha means the one who is in the present moment. Thus gone one means the one who has gone to thisness or thusness. Mm. Interesting. But how couldn't you get that out of the translation that you did get? No. <laughs> wow, that's very interesting. So you too can be Tathagatha. You too can be right here, right now. By waking up and paying attention to what's going on right here, right now, and making a change. The change is to change it from what you thought it was into what it actually is. Yeah. So come out of our ideas and concepts into the reality of the moment. Mm. Coming, coming out of our imagination. Right, precisely. And coming into investigation. Coming out of the books and picking up the telescope for the binoculars and look. Sometimes people ask me what books should they read? And the answer to that is read the book between your ears. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> All right, so one last point, and that is that you said that you practiced about 15 minutes. I would recommend that 15 minutes is a good time. But it's not often enough, not once a day. We need to practice three, four, five, six times a day for 15 minutes. Because what's 15 minutes going to do you when you've got the other 23 hours and 45 minutes of old hindrances? It's better to practice often. To sit down intentionally to sit down and to say right now, I'm going to be here now. Right now, I'm going to think about what is right in front of me. This, the body, the feelings. What's in the mind? and to start making some changes. So this is the practice that I would recommend four, five, six times a day for 15 minutes. 10 or 15 minutes is good. In Western Buddhism, they think that, oh, you got to sit for an hour. But normally people get really tired after about 30 minutes, especially if they're not used to the posture. And their mind has lost its focus and attention. And so they, they start their meditation with the idea of, oh, I've got time. And now after 10 or 20 minutes, now the mind is really tired and they still don't practice. So when you're taking 15 minutes to practice, make sure that that first breath is a practice right from the get go to take that deep breath and say everything is OK right now. Everything is fine. No worries, no problems. I don't have to think about that. And then when thoughts do come, we can say, aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see that thought. Then we can just throw it out and come back to the present moment. 
Ah, but I don't have to think about that now. Isn't it nice I don't have to think about any of those problems? I can just sit here for the next five or ten minutes and just enjoy relaxing. Mm. Yeah. I feel like there's always going to be hindrances, though. Like, you can't throw Always? Them. What kind of word is an always word? <laughs> as long as the body is alive. It's... Well, let us put it this way. Always means you're not looking. Because if you are looking and you throw that hindrance out, then there, then right now, always doesn't exist. You can make a change. Not only that, but you do have wholesome thoughts on a regular basis. If you had one unwholesome thought after another after another with no wholesome thoughts in there anywhere, you'd already be dead. <laughs> Either the body would cave down on itself or you'd have hurt it somehow. But bodies don't last if you are totally 100% negative all the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think some people manage it. Uh, not for long. Not yeah. even corporate executives. No, they have to have some kind of wholesome. Mm -hmm. They're just looking for love in all the wrong places. But they do relax. If a guy doesn't relax ever and is uptight all the time, he's going to give himself a heart attack. Hmm. So you do have wholesome thoughts. Begin to look at the wholesome thoughts that you do have. Sometimes you're going to wake up and, and look at the thought that you're having. You're saying, hey, that was already a wholesome thought. And now you can go directly into the yippee ki -okay I'm already having wholesome thoughts. I don't even have to take the effort. I, I still have a hard time getting into jhana, though. Well, having trouble getting into jhana is the way you've been practicing. We're not trying to practice getting into jhana. You're not practicing getting anything. Right. Getting into jhana, you can't do it. Of yeah. course it's hard. Yeah. Stop trying to get something and just yeah. relax and be satisfied with what you've already got. That's good. That's good advice. Yeah. Well, it's the advice of the Buddha. Yeah. If you understand the jhana factors, then you have to understand how to practice those with the Eightfold Noble Path so that you can talk yourself into being satisfied. You don't get jhana and then become satisfied because you've got jhana. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you have to have the satisfaction and the wow experience. And then you can label that as first John. Okay. Well, David, I think that we've gotten uh, a good place to rest today. Um, I would recommend you go practice for a few days and then call me back. Okay, I'll take what you said to heart uh, thank you so much for your time and all your words of advice
Yeah, it was great to talk to you, Damarat. All right. Enjoy the moment. Thank you. Thank you. Some people would say, have a good day. I don't have anything to do with the rest of the day. I don't know what that's like. But for right now, have, have a good moment. Have a, uh, <laughs> have a good moment. <laughs> it's all the, <laughs> the only moment. So. This is all we got. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. See you. Take care.